Good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we are this morning. And as you're turning there, I'll go ahead and make you aware. The Hankies, the family that was baptized this morning, they were uh, being baptized into the church. And so they're uh, coming to membership today. And so I make a motion we receive them. Do I have a second? All those in favor, would you say, I love you? And that is the call of the church, to love one another. And uh, so that is what we do. I do want to make you also aware that at one point in the message this morning, I'm aware that there are younger ears in the, in the crowd, but we will be covering some sensitive material that revolves around human trafficking. And so that is my uh, disclaimer right at the beginning of the sermon. You know, I don't have that at the bottom of the screen, but that's my disclaimer uh, in case you need to slip out for a moment. Uh, that is totally understandable if you have young ears. And at the end of service, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so hopefully you were able to grab one of those cups on the way in. And Nehemiah, he has returned to Jerusalem. He has started a good work. He's rallied the people and they're beginning to rebuild the walls. And now they've been met with opposition that is coming from all different sides. And as you see them rally together, they also rally together to fight a good fight with spears in one hand and their trowels in the other. They are continuing to do the work. But as they were attacked, they would... They would fight that outside conflict, but as time has gone on now in chapter 5, we see that they are being attacked with spiritual warfare from within. Uh, Warren Wearsby says, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within, and one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so that I can be happy and taking advantage of them so that I can have my own way. It is not only wanting my own way, but expecting everyone else to want the way I want to. J. Vernon McGee, in the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was join it. And one unknown scholar said, it has been said that in a church quarrel, the devil remains neutral and supplies ammunition to both sides. As Matthew 7:15, beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Second Peter 2:1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. As we see the opposition coming in from all different angles, now we see an inner conflict that takes place in the people of God. As J.I. Packer explains in chapter 4, the picture was a community rallying, rallying together the rakes under pressure. Here, however, the picture is the same community coming apart at the seams because of festering grievances among the members. Here, we hear the great outcry in which Wives, homemakers, and mothers joined in protesting the way their homes and families were being threatened. Nehemiah chapter 5. If you've got your Bible, follow along there with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there was those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are 
forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in, my, in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their, these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. This promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time, as I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them, from their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its rich truth, and we thank you that it speaks to us today, even the narrative of Nehemiah and how it shows us that you're a God who is about a kingdom work, who is about doing a work on the behalf of a people that are in debt, who are enslaved who are hopeless, and who are crying out for mercy. Father, we thank you for sending your son to answer that very cry, that you have given us much in the sacrifice of your son, that you've relieved the debt of sin, that we could not relieve ourselves. We were helpless, and we could do nothing about it, and you gave us your son, Jesus Christ. So today we remember, oh, the good that you have done. Today, may you speak to us through your word, and may you change our hearts, and may you mold us more and more into the image of your son. In Christ's name, amen. Kingdom work is not immune to inner conflict. The first thing is kingdom work is not immune to inner conflict. Verses 1 through 5, we see here that a great outcry arose. And this great outcry was the loud objection under the load of oppression. This is similar language to what we see in Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 24. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that verse, and God knew. To think about the fact that when we cry out because of an oppression, because of a load that we cannot bear, that God knows. He knows even before we cry out. He hears our cries for help. In this particular section of scripture, we see that the wives are crying out as well, that this is a family in turmoil, that they are having difficult work conditions, the hours that Nehemiah has demanded, the night shifts, the stressful situation, the, uh, the scenario of men holding weapons while also working, the men are coming home at odd hours, they're dead tired from exhaustion, the fields and the crops are not being tended to, and there is no food. They're starting to run into a famine. And so, they're crying out because of this inner turmoil that is taking place. Well, there's three things that I see here that are causing inner conflict. The first one is an inner conflict from inadequate provision. Inadequate. Verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. The neglecting of someone's needs always leads to conflict. H.G.M. Williamson in his commentary in Ezra and Nehemiah says, Since Nehemiah had forbidden the men to return home from Jerusalem while the wall was being built, the farms may have been severely understaffed during a crucial period of ingathering. Basically what is going on here is that they're being squeezed. They're getting hungry. They're starving. There's no food on the table. And so they're not, now they're beginning to complain and they're beginning to cry out against their own, their own family members, their own, their own blood, their own Jewish heritage. This is what happens in any conflict. When someone's needs are not being met, eventually there reaches a boiling point where there's a cry out. And this is what happens here in this section. B, the second thing we see that's causing inner conflict is insufficient funds. There were also those who said we were mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Here, you see them going into financial debt. Nothing causes fights like financial hardships. Am I right? When I do premarital counseling, it's, it's a lot of fun because all you're doing is teaching them how to fight. Because it's coming, right? When the honeymoon's over, the hard times begin. And one of the things that, that we like to talk about in what you fight about is, are my needs being met? Are, are you treating me fairly? And so if you don't feel like your needs are being met, then there's going to cause conflict in the marriage. Uh, kids always bring up an issue. Well, how you're parenting, your, your kids are either going to make you unite or they're going to make you fight. That's the two things that are going to happen with, with kids in the home. And then the last one, which is the, the thing that really causes a lot of problems in marriage is how you handle money. And this becomes a huge issue and it can cause all kinds of inner conflict when you're stressed, when bills are not being paid, when, when there's complaining that's going on that I cannot believe you spent money on that. I thought we were saving for this and, and those different things are happening. So here you have this inner hardship that's taking place, this inner turmoil because of insufficient funds. And thirdly, an inner conflict from improper treatment. Verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves 
And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. And here's the part that I was giving you the parental warning on. Internal conflict is inevitable when people are being used, abused, and treated improperly. Excuse me. There's uh, an injustice that's going on here. And one commentator says that when it refers to the second reference of the daughters being enslaved, that the girls more than likely had been sent to a local Persian government official as sex slaves in order to delay foreclosure on these homes and these properties. According to the End It movement, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it is a movement to stop human trafficking and slavery. There are more people trapped in slavery today than ever before in human history. In fact, there are 40.3 million people trapped and held against their will in slavery today. 40.3 million. Human trafficking generates approximately $32 billion annually. Human trafficking is second only to drug trafficking. Why? Well, you can sell a gun once, you can sell a bag of cocaine once, but you can sell a human over and over and over. And as David Platt and the radical staff said, every time a man or a woman views pornography online, they are contributing to a cycle of sex slavery from the privacy of our own computers. We are fueling an industry that enslaves people for sex in order to satisfy selfish pleasures in our living rooms, our offices, and our mobile phones. The hypocrisy is staggering, and the conclusion is clear. No matter how many red X's we write on our hands to end slavery, as long as these same hands are clicking on pornographic websites and scrolling through sexual pictures and videos, we are funding it at its core. Any and every time we indulge in pornography, we deny the precious gospel truth that every man and woman possesses inherent dignity not to be solicited and sold for sex, but to be valued and treasured as excellent in the eyes of God. People are not inferior objects to be used and abused for selfish, sexual, and sensual pleasures. They are equal image bearers of the God who loves and cares for them. We may scoff at how the pre-Civil War churchgoers justified slaves in their backyards, but but aren't we dangerously like them when we participate in pornography? in our own homes. The continual consumption of pornography by the church is the modern day equivalent to the brothers fueling and funding the improper treatment of Jewish sons and daughters who were being sold into slavery. I say all that because there is this inner conflict that is coming out of a cry for help. There's a, there's a major problem going on here. I know, Nehemiah, you're doing a great work. You're, you're working on a wall. You, you've got your, your whole mindset on this thing, but can you not see what is happening over here? Can you not see that the people are suffering? Can you not see that people are enslaved? Can you not see that people are in debt? Can you not see that there's hurting that is going on in this world? And yet you're over here doing this thing that you think is such a good work? And so there's this outcry that takes place. And so what, what I'm saying is that there can be all kinds of kingdom work where we're, we're inside the walls of the church and we're saying, look, I'm doing a good thing, I'm doing a good thing. And there's a world out there that's crying out, do you not see the pain that we're in? Do you not see that we're enslaved to sin? Do you not see that we're hungry, that we're, that we're in debt, that we have a sin debt that we can never recover from? There's an outcry. And the church has to do something. So kingdom work does not ignore an immense crisis. It cannot ignore the crisis. 
A, an immense crisis and a righteous response. Verse 6. This is how Nehemiah responds. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah's response was anger. Righteous anger. Just angry. Have you ever just been so angry when you've heard news about someone else? How they're being treated? You're just angry. And so anger can either be sinful or it can be righteous. And there's a very fine line, isn't there? Ephesians 4, the the chapter gives two verses that shows you a very fine line. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. So you can be angry and not sin. But then in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Jesus, we know, was angry and he did not sin. Mark 3, 1 through 5, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbaths so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with, you see it, anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus is angry with these religious people who were busy doing a good work, but ignoring the hurt and the pain and the suffering of the people that were all around them. A righteous anger. It's difficult to tell what is righteous anger and sinful anger, but righteous anger is usually communal. It's directed against the sinful treatment of others and should move us toward constructive means to try to resolve the problem. Usually righteous anger is because you see the grievance, you see the sin, and you want God to desperately do something about it. This was Nehemiah's anger. Whereas sinful anger is usually personal, it is directed toward others from a personal offense or grievance that has a motive of selfishness and pride that seeks to get even or revenge. The church should be responding to human trafficking, to child abuse, to pornography, to abortion, to racism, to the mistreatment of women with a righteous anger, not an indifferent or ignoring apathy to all the things that are happening around us. So there is a righteous response, which leads to be, in an immense crisis, a right confrontation. He says there in verse 7, I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I took counsel with myself. If I was to put that in my own language, he he took a chill pill real quick. He took a deep breath and he didn't say something that he ought not to say even though he was angry. He guarded his words. Proverbs teaches us this. This is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 13, 3, whoever guards his mouth perseveres, preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And James, which is referred to as the New Testament Proverbs, says this in 119, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
Have you ever been so angry that you said things you wish you could have not said after they came out? I was so angry I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have taken counsel with myself. Maybe I should have talked myself down so that I could have responded more properly. How much better would we be at handling conflict if we would just control our tongues? If we would just control the things that we want to blurt out that are hurtful. Verse 9, he does say to them, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? How we respond is a witness. We are to go straight to the people who are causing the problems and we are to confront them. If we have righteous anger, then we have a right confrontation and a right confrontation goes directly to the party. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This inner turmoil that's going on, the inner conflict, is a form of spiritual warfare that is taking place where you begin to attack one another. And so often, it is so easy for us to fall trapped to the spiritual warfare of taking the offense we have to everyone else before we take it to the person. It's so common in church to go around and, and to skip the first two steps and go straight to all the people in the church and say, let me, let me plead my case with you because I've been wronged and I want to see if I'm right in my wrong and I'm going I'm to get some backup on this and then we're going to address it on a roundabout way. But really, we're taught if you have an ought with somebody, if you have a problem, you go, you go right to them. There's no sense in causing dissension and gossip throughout the church. That's a right. There's a right way to do it. There's a right confrontation and see an immense crisis and a repentant act. Verses 10 through 13. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. You see Nehemiah includes himself in on the problem. He's aware that I am guilty in this way too. He makes it personal. He says, I and my brothers, we are guilty. Let us stop doing this. And why is he so concerned about this? Because he is breaking the word of God. His offense is towards God. Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20 tells us, you shall not charge interest or loans to your brother, Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother's interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. He takes ownership of broken obedience to the word of God. And it's not that we're to confront sin in self-righteousness, we're to confront sin with self-examination. When we're, when we're aware of a conflict, when we're aware of an issue in a church, when we're aware of an issue in a family, when we're aware of an issue in a community, and we know that there's a grievance that's going in place, and we're going to go straight to that person, we don't come with self-righteousness, we come with self-examination. 
This is what we're taught by Paul in Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. We're taught here, and we're seeing the example here from Nehemiah, that when there's injustice taking place, when there's an inner turmoil taking place, when we are made aware of it and we respond rightly, number one, control your words. Control your words. Guard your lips. Because when you receive that information, the, the initial thing you want to do is go and talk about it. Am I right? Control your words. Number two, confront and call out sin. It's so difficult. We like to sweep things under the rug. We like to pretend like we don't know what's going on. Maybe someone else will see it. Maybe someone else will say something. But if we know of a sin, we are to go straight to that person and call it out. What you're doing is not good. And thirdly, carefully repent of your own sin. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When we see the sin in other people's lives, it should be a mirror to show us the sin in our own life. He says, we will restore these and require nothing from them, verse 12. There is a repentance that leads to a response. Words of repentance are easy. Follow through with action of repentance is hard. This is why he makes them take an oath and a promise. The beautiful thing that we see in the scripture is that repentance that takes place is restorative. It restores them. Repentance relinquishes debts. They're going to give everything back to them. Repentance results in revival, they say there at the end. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. Repentance restores. Today, you have an opportunity, if you know that there's sin in your life, to go and humble yourself before a loving God who forgives us of our sins. As we repent, he restores us into a right relationship with him. Repentance relinquishes the debts. We are in a debt that we can never overcome. You can't do enough good works to overcome all the sins that are in your life. And so when we repent, he relinquishes those debts. And then there's a result that is revival. We are blown away by the loving kindness of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, when you repent, when you are aware of sin in your own life, aren't you thankful that your debts are forgiven? Amen. Aren't you thankful that he restores you in the relationship that you have with him? Aren't you thankful for the impact that it has on the people around you when you repent? Listen, there's a lot of talk about revival lately. And there is no revival without repentance. When a people will humble themselves and bow their knee and they will openly confess sin in front of a multitude of people and say, I am a sinner and I desperately need a savior, it's contagious. Because we're all broken. We're all in debt. We're all in slavery. We're all helpless unless there is repentance and there is restoration that takes place. We're longing for a revival. Well, let's be longing for repentance to call out sin when we know that there's sin that shouldn't be there. It's a kingdom work. Kingdom work is sacrificial 
with intentional service. Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. A intentional service of lessening burdens. Here's the response from the repentance and the revival. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah feared God and was a servant towards God's people by lessening their burdens. One of the things that we can do when we, are, when we see that there's an immense crisis is do what we can to lessen the burdens. Because this is what Nehemiah shows us, but this is also what Jesus shows us. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who lifted the heavy burden of the law. As we read in Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says this to a people who are weighed down by the burden of the law, people who, who are exhausted at trying to be good enough and they'll never be good enough. Come to me. I will lessen the burden. I will give you a spirit that lives within you and I will write my law on your heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and find rest. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We have the opportunity today to lessen the burdens, to humbly bow before the king because he has fulfilled the law in our place. Be an intentional service of giving blessings, not only lessening burdens, but now giving blessings. Verses 16 through 18. I also preserved, persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all the servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. At his own expense, he provided all of this sacrifice. At his own expense, he provided all of this wine in abundance. He was fitting the bill for all of this. He was going to give blessings on top of lessening burdens. And so Nehemiah models servant leadership at his own expense. It cost him greatly to serve. We're called to sacrifice greatly for the kingdom, to serve. This is what we've learned from Jesus. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who sacrificed himself, offering his blood as an abundance of forgiveness for us. He offers the perfect sacrifice. 
Philippians 2, 1 through 8, we read, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is servant leadership. It is a sacrifice that's an abundance of blessings. Romans 8, 31 through 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. There is an abundance of blood shed for our sins on the cross, and we are recipients of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and it was at his expense, not ours. It is a free offering. It is a blessing. It is a gift. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45 an intentional service of good works. Lessening burdens, giving blessings, and good works. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah wants to be remembered for the good that he has done for God's people. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, who we remember today for the good work of being the sacrifice for his people. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He offered his life for us in abundance so that we could receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. If we will repent and fall before him, we will remember the sacrifice. So as Nehemiah wants to be remembered, Jesus says, as often as you do this, Do this in remembrance of me. We want to remember the sacrifice. 